To find out more about the series, please go to virgilkaylock.uk. The Strange Tales of Virgil Kaylock. Wormwood. Chapter One. I was 27 years old. Time had already scored lines across my brow, and my youth was fading. I had naively supposed that if I jumped into the river of life, I would somehow be swept along in spite of myself. It was surely inevitable that I would achieve something sooner or later, if not by design, then by chance. I was beginning to realize that if this principle was true for some, it was not true for me. I was unremarkable. I was not advancing, and I had made no useful contribution to the world. I had no friends to speak of. Dorothy seemed as aloof as ever, and after five years of trying to make an impression, I was, at best, a sideshow to the main events in her calendar. What they were, I don't know, because I was not there. I was not invited. But I think they mostly involved her increasing success at the Illustrated London News. She had already achieved so much. I had not. Ennui had taken hold, and I had found little meaning to my life. Certainly I could discern no explanation for the paranormal encounters that had unsettled me for the last seven years. If they had been a test of some kind, I had unquestionably failed. I had not heroically vanquished the horrors that had shown themselves. I had merely been present. My existence was one of perpetual dread, frightened for my life, and what further terrors might befall me. There was to be a total eclipse of the sun, and the museum had arranged a gala for the public to observe the celestial marvel from its lawns. They had hired a brass band, organized an illustrated lecture, and ordered darkened lenses so our patrons could see the phenomenon in safety. I invited Dorothy, of course, and she had turned me down, of course. I'm sorry, Virgil, but I can't. I would have loved to, but, you know, you can't just spring things on me. I have a life. It's over a week away. I know. I was just hoping you would want to, that's all. Well, I can't. Are you going to write about it for the paper? Absolutely not. Do you think that they would let a woman loose in the world of science? and Their heads would spin. No, I'm watching it with friends. I'm going to a picnic. I'm going to have fun. Right. I suppose they might let me write something like the 10 best solar eclipse recipes. <laughs> no, how about, don't let your eclipse party be eclipsed. Actually, I don't know what all the fuss is about. Gets a little bit dark, so what? The Aztecs believed that the solar eclipse marks divine disapproval. They sacrificed hundreds, thousands, as many as they could to stop their world from ending. Well, thank goodness we're not so stupid. Well, they were right, I suppose. The world didn't end. Well, it did for them. Anyway, you'll enjoy watching it with your museum friends. You must all be thrilled that you're allowed out. A brief moment in the eclipsed sun. Actually, the correct term is occulted. An occulted sun. It is an occult event from the Latin oculare to conceal. Snore. 
Is that how you talk to each other? Wouldn't it be more fun to speak properly? What do you mean? I mean, just enjoy it. Enjoy life without analysing it and stuffifying it to death. You think I'm stuffy? Sometimes. I'm sure I'm as capable of a bit of joie de vivre as anyone else given half a chance, don't you think? Not really, no. What? You're so serious about everything. Are you surprised after everything I've been through? We've been through? Yeah, but that's why you have to live life to the full. The world is taxing enough without sulking on top of it. I'm not sulking. Well, you are certainly not living life to the full. I'm sorry if I bore you. I have to go. What about lunch? Sorry, I can't. When will I see you? Tuesday? I can't do Tuesday. When then? Do you really have to go now? Yes. Here. No, absolutely not. I'll pay. Thanks. Well, goodbye. Dorothy, look, this is awful. Why are we rowing? I'm not rowing. I don't know what's happened. We can't seem to have a normal conversation anymore. Don't leave like this. Like what? Let's make an arrangement to meet again and try really hard next time. <laughs> Do you know how awful that sounds? Dorothy... Sorry, Virgil, I have to go. Wait, when will I see you? I don't know. I'm not making any definite plans. Then perhaps we should just, you know, leave it for a while. Oh, I see. The world is moving so fast. Can't you feel it? I don't want to stand still like something behind glass in your museum. I want to enjoy it. Enjoy life. Do you know that you can speak on the telephone to New York? Well, be sure to give them my regards. And I hope they provide you with all the merriment you crave. Goodbye, Virgil. Dorothy. Dorothy! Damn it. It was clear that Dorothy wanted nothing more to do with me. And that was that. Our relationship was at an end. I wondered if it had ever really been there in the first place. The more I thought about it, it became clear that the romance between us had been a complete delusion, a fantasy. Dorothy had never had any interest in me, and never would. In my fawning, I had simply irritated her and pushed her further away. I felt like an idiot. I felt like a failure. And I felt miserable. The correct term is an occult or an occultin moon or some, you see. Is that so? Oh, yes. It's derived from the Latin oculare, to hide or obscure. I had returned to the bowels of the museum and was sitting in a desultory manner, sorting pottery fragments into piles, as Mr Chidlow pontificated. Eclipses have been observed and feared from the beginnings of humanity. You can see why, of course. They are very rare events. It's easy to imagine a primitive society being in awe. Before their very eyes, a big black hole appears in the sky where the sun used to be, a gateway. To hell, perhaps. At the very least, it would seem like a stark celestial message from the gods. Uh, will you be bringing Miss Bell? Uh, no, I don't think so. Oh? Why? She's busy. A shame. It'd be quite an event. The basement of the British Museum existed in a permanent occultation. Little natural light could reach us, and so our workplace was illuminated by electric bulbs that burned all day long. The meagre windows high in the wall were at pavement level, and straining our necks we could catch an occasional glimpse of passing feet, drifting leaves and pigeons. If it rains, we could of course come inside, but what would be the point of that? Kaylock, are you listening or am I talking to myself? Pardon? Oh, yes, Mr Chidler. Your head is on another planet. What's wrong with you? You don't seem that interested in it. Sorry. It's a very rare event. Yes, I know. Sorry. <sighs> well, we may as well go up for lunch. What are you doing? Um, that's not Corinthian. Isn't it? No, of course not. It's not even Roman, it's Hellenic. Oh, yes, so it is. Sorry, I'm... So... It's Greek, Kaylock. Yes, yes. It's Greek. 
Oh, good grief, you'll have to do better than this. Where's your brain? Sorry, Mr. Chidler. We are the guardians of the past, Kaylock. Of civilization itself. That comes with some responsibility, does it not? Yes. You are not indispensable, Kaylock. Remember that. I will. You'll have to sort it out after lunch. I'll stay down here, if you don't mind. What? No lunch? I'd better sort it out now, I think. Oh, very well, suit yourself. I'll be back in an hour. I could hardly find the motivation to go on breathing. And so, I remained alone, slumped at the table, poking at pottery shards, and sinking further and further into despondency. A tapping on glass. A flurry of dark feathers. A black crow stood, framed in the high window. It cocked its head and struck its beak against the pane. Perhaps it had caught sight of its reflection in the glass. And yet, it seemed to be looking straight down at me. It didn't hop or fly away. It continued for some while, cocking its head from side to side and tapping. Then, in a commotion of shadows, it was gone, and in its place, the waxy, pale face of a man with beady eyes and jet-black hair. He tilted his head in curiosity. Then he smiled, revealing his teeth, and the world went black. Good God! The electric lights had blown. In my alarm, I had dislodged the tray from the table, and the ancient pottery smashed onto the hard floor. I fell to my knees, as if in my dismay I could save it. I crawled in the dark, gathering the broken pieces, but the fragile terracotta, which had only been shards to begin with, lay about me as tiny, shattered fragments and dust. Mr. Chidlow, I can only apologise. It was an accident. A, a terrible, clumsy accident. I, I'm appalled at what has happened. Really, really appalled. Mr. Chidlow sat behind his desk, looking over his glasses as I wrung my hands. As you say, sir, my head has not been right for a while. Quite a while, actually. And I've been very clumsy, and I'm so, so very sorry. I am disappointed, Kaylock. I had high hopes for you here at the museum. You are a pleasant young man and capable at times, but your heart is not in it. Oh, no, it is. It really is, sir. My heart is actually in it, Mr. Chidlow. I confess I have been distracted somewhat. I acknowledge that, and I offer no excuses. Just my apology, and if you think it is necessary, my notice. That is, if you think that it is actually necessary, possibly. Mr. Kaylock, I am terminating your employment as of today. I have no choice, and I'm very sorry. I had hoped for better, but there we are. In the meantime, this arrived for you this afternoon. He thrust the paper towards me and turned his face away. Telegrams rarely deliver good news. It had come from Windermere, and it was a brief message from my Aunt Bethany. It's my father, sir. He is gravely ill, and I am requested to return home as soon as possible. I packed quickly and was at the station that afternoon, and after walking up and down the platform, I was able to find an empty compartment. I needed solitude in which I might nurse my misery. The journey was a familiar one, though I had not taken it for some time. Ever since I had left home, I had diligently taken the long train journey once a year, from Euston to Oxenholme to Windermere, and then on to High Skelton. It had been an act of duty more than anything else, with every visit, the disappointment in my father's face seemed to increase. We found little to say to one another, 
and after a few words from which he was able to establish my failure in all things, there were stretches of uncomfortable silence. Mealtimes were often so awkward that we would invent reasons to avoid them. So I had not returned for nearly two years. The dull autumnal landscape passed by without drawing attention to itself. I needed time to think. I had lived with so many years of resentment that I was not entirely sure that I had any feelings for my father at all. But my mother had died at my birth, and I had no siblings, so he was the entirety of my family. I think I may have felt more sorry for myself than for him. I sat hunched, my head leaning against the window. The dull autumn fields raced past, bleak and cold. The season had rendered them uniformly grey, save for the many black crows which seemed to gather everywhere in the fields and on the fences. The train had just passed Stoke when I became aware of an odour, a sharp, pungent smell, redolent of burning. Ah, there we are. May I join you? I resented the intrusion and would have preferred to remain alone. I pretended to be asleep. Not too cold for November, is it? The voice was oddly familiar to me. A friendly, avuncular voice. A lilting, gentle voice that made my throat tighten and my skin crawl. When all's said and done, it's only weather. <laughs> of course, we get too much of it in this country. In other parts of the world, they get none at all. I did not want company and had chosen solitude. The fellow was talkative, bright and cheerful, a demeanor completely at odds with my own. Are you sure you don't mind? Uh, no, not at all. He was a short man of middle age with a sage green three-piece worsted suit. He had an alarmingly pale face, small bird-like eyes, and a mop of unruly black hair which seemed to grow vertically up from his head. Going far? Um, Windermere. Ah, the lakes. The lakes have more weather than the rest of the country put together. I hope you are prepared. He leaned forward in his seat and rested his chin on the handle of his cane, as if to get a better look at me. And what awaits you in Windermere, young sir? I knew this man. My mind was in turmoil. Business? No. A holiday, perhaps? Family. Of course. The very best reason to travel. Family. <laughs> Do you mind if I smoke? He took a tin from his pocket and began the long ritual of stuffing and packing a pipe. The concentration and rigmarole did not prevent him from talking, however. Ah, yes. Family. Our comfort and our affliction. Our succor and our vexation. <laughs> you won't find one without the other. With the pipe lit, the strong odour intensified. It was the smell of sulphur. Trickage, please. Thank you, sir. How long until we reach Oxenholm, Inspector? About three hours, sir. Thank you, sir. Such a pleasure to have company on such a long journey. Don't you agree? Haven't we met before? I believe I know you. Well, now, isn't that odd? I think we may have done. One meets so many people, it is entirely possible that it happens more than once. <laughs> How do you do? Is it Mr. Greenhill? Yes, indeed. Pleased to make your acquaintance again. <laughs> now, you were telling me about your family in Windermere. Was I? Family. The only place to go when life's vicissitudes come calling. An encouraging word from father and mother's loving caress. 
How is your mother? She's dead. But of course she is. Quite so. Quite so. Now then, shall I tell you the reason for my journey? Yes. Why, to see the eclipse, of course. And do you know the very best place to observe the eclipse? No. Why, it's Windermere. Oh. Yes, Windermere. Perhaps you would like to join me. We'll see you together, shall we? I'll reach out to you nearer the time, but I'm intruding. You look tired. The pungent smoke thickened around me. A great weight dragged at my soul, pulling me down. I closed my eyes and turned my face to the window. You're very tired. Yes, I am, rather. Sleep. It's the best thing. The best thing. Sleep away. Try as I might, I could not help myself from falling into a dismal torpor. A weariness sat heavily upon my soul, and I was crushed by the weight of my despair. Yes, come sleep. The balm of woe, the prisoner's release. Nod away. After all, what else can one do? For our days in the sun are all too brief, and soon shall pass. All will come to naught, and all shall return to dust. The sun itself, Phoebus Khan, shall, like a brief candle, be snuffed out, and night's black princes will reign. The broken angel will raise his flaming torch in the eternity of night. The world and all its souls are for the dark. Rest, my darling boy. Sleep. Dream away the little time that's left to you, my golden one. Arium unam de sacris clavum. Rest, Virgil Caleb. At the mention of my name, I opened my eyes, but to my consternation, I was entirely alone. The fellow had gone. I jumped to my feet and opened the door, expecting to see him in the corridor. There was no one there. Only the inspector, leaving a compartment a few doors down. I say, inspector, did you see the chap that was here just now? No, sir. Green suit. And a pipe? He had a cane. No, sir. But you must have seen him. He was here just a moment ago. You saw him when you came for the tickets. Afraid not, sir. No one that fits that description. But he was sitting right here. There, just a moment ago. Sorry, sir, I don't recall him, sir. There was no one in that compartment but yourself, sir. The smoke and sulfurous smell had gone. There was no indication of his presence at all. I was alone. I sat in the compartment, confounded. I had dreamt the whole encounter. There had been no one. Mr. Greenhill had not returned because he did not exist. He was, as he had always been, a figment of my imagination. I found comfort in my reasoning, but I did not return to sleep. I changed at Oxenholm and continued on to Windermere. It was too late to find a taxi for hire, so I set off to walk the three miles to home. The closer I came to High Skelton, the greater my feelings of foreboding. It was late by the time I arrived, nearly midnight, I stood in the driveway, looking up at the familiar building, not wanting to go in. I could see that the lights were on in the ground floor rooms, even though thick curtains lined the windows. But my father's room on the first floor was quite dark. Virgil, there you are. 
Look at you. Oh, you must be so tired. Are you hungry? The fire is lit in the parlour. Come on in. Aunt Bethany was my father's younger sister. She was kind and gentle, and in all ways the opposite of him. She had remained unmarried, and as my father's health had failed, she had been the only family member to offer assistance, and she had moved into High Skelton as his companion and nurse. We sat in front of the fire with tea and sandwiches. Aunt Beth looked older, but then everybody does. It transpired that my father had fallen and taken to his bed. Days had passed. He had not recovered and was getting weaker. He's sleeping now, but you will see him tomorrow. He sleeps most of the time. What does the doctor say? Not much. I think he would rather keep quiet than tell us the truth. N no, I I'm sorry. We must remain hopeful. He's looking forward to seeing you. Really? Yes, of course he is, and why not? You are quite the man now. Look at you. I haven't seen you for a good few years and you're suddenly the man of the house and with a fine job at the British Museum. Very impressive. A curator, no less. A junior curator. Well, they don't just give jobs like that away. We are expecting great things. We're all very proud. I don't think Father ever thought much of it. Nonsense. He's very proud of you. Of course he is. You're his only child. You're all he has. You might be surprised, you know. He's not the hectoring man that he used to be. He's softer now. Thank you, Aunt, for all that you've done, for looking after him. I'm so grateful. I should have been back sooner. You're here now. That's all that matters. And there's not much for you to do. Just sit with him, that's all. Sometimes he talks, but more often he'll just doze. What... What does he talk about? Oh, you know, everything and nothing. The state of the house, politics, the eclipse, Ireland. We were talking today about telephones. He would never agree to have one in the house. But progress marches on, even here. And now we have one, of course. It makes us all jump when it rings. He takes an interest in all manner of things. Does he talk about my mother? No. No, he, he doesn't like to dwell on the past. No. He's never talked about her. No one has, really. I never knew her, and I have no idea what she was really like. I was hoping that perhaps now, at last, he would tell me something. She was a wonderful woman, a great friend to me. We were very close for a while. She was very kind and beautiful, and she loved you very much. Well, she never met me, did she? She would be so proud of you, no doubt in my mind. But it's best if you don't talk to Gordon about her. He still feels the hurt. It's so sad. Such a sad time. My aunt's gaze drifted up to the photograph on the mantelpiece where my mother looked down at us, sepia and solemn in an ebony frame. It was a staged affair. She stood next to a jardiniere containing a large tropical plant, her clothes dark and heavy, her hand clasping the pendant that hung from her neck. A woman from another age. A Victorian. An historical figure. I had studied this photograph for my entire childhood, looking for clues, hoping to find myself in those blank and sightless eyes. It was hard for you, I know, poor little boy, without a mother, growing up in this old house on your own. And your father has never recovered, not really. After her death, he retreated from all of us. 
into the army, into the paper, into his study. We never really saw that side of him again, the softer side, the kinder side. I know he has been hard on you, but at the last, I think I can see the old Gordon coming back, just a little bit. Now, you must be exhausted. Off to bed with you and you'll see him in the morning. My old room had hardly changed since I left it seven years ago. The shelves still held the familiar old books and dusty detritus of a solitary childhood. I stood at the window, and I felt pity for the boy who had stood there for so many years, looking out at his lonely world. The dark trees shuddered in the wind. The moon was high and bright, painting the night a silvery grey. But my eyes were drawn to the stretch of grass that lay in front of the house. It was dotted with restless black shapes. Dozens, perhaps fifty or sixty black crows, shifting and fluttering in the moonlight. And standing in their midst, a shadow. The figure of a man drawing on a pipe. A small man with thick, unruly black hair. And in the cold night air, the acrid scent of sulphur. Chapter 1 by John Ram. Virgil Kaylock was played by Nicholas Bolton. The Young Kaylock, Daniel Fraser. Dorothy Bell, Ellie Turner. Aunt Beth, Jenny Funnel. Gordon Kaylock, Sam Dale. And the part of Mr. Greenhill was played by Gary Lilburn. The music was composed and performed by Neil Brand. The Strange Tales of Virgil Kaylock is supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England. It is produced by Richard Varman, Martin Malone, and John Ram. It is a Kalock production. To find out more about the series, please go to virgilkalock.uk.